Augustine of Hippo, also known as St. Augustine, who lived from 354 to 430, is probably has the greatest name recognition of any Christian outside of uh, those in the Bible and the authors of the Word of God. Certainly, uh, with the exception of them, he has probably had the greatest impact of all other people on Christian faith. Augustine is famous not only for his faith in Christ, but he's also famous for the life he lived before he came to faith in Christ. He followed other religions. He, he looked for, for hope and satisfaction in Neoplatonic philosophies. The most famous part of his famous life before he came to faith is probably his well-known sexual immorality. In that way, Augustine tried to find satisfaction. But he could find no rest in any of these. And so after Augustine became a follower of Christ, it makes sense that he would write in his famous confessions uh, these words, probably the most quoted of all uh, of the words that he wrote. And, And here's what Augustine said. Thou hast made us for thyself, O Lord, and our heart is restless until it finds its rest in thee. Our hearts are restless, Lord until they find rest in you. Now I hope that that rings true for you as a believer in Christ, that that has been your experience. The question is, do you believe that to be true for others as well? Soul rest found only in Christ. Augustine goes on to write, O Lord my God, say to my soul, I am your salvation. Say it so that I can hear it. My heart is listening, Lord. Open the ears of my heart and say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let me run toward this voice and seize hold of you. Do not hide your face from me. Let me die so that I may may see it. For not to see your face would be death to me indeed. I hope you don't find those words too intense. But rather that you would consider those words normative for the person who is a believer in Christ. That kind of longing after the Lord would be normal. That you would know that real soul satisfaction comes only from being in the Lord. And I hope that you will believe that for others as well. Every human heart will not find rest, cannot find rest unless it finds it in Christ. When you and I believe that, as I pray that we will, then the obligation before us is very clear, right? We have to get that message to the world. Real rest for the soul is found only in Christ. You know people. You have friends. You have family members who are looking for rest. And they're looking for it in created things rather than in the Creator. You know people. You have friends. You have family who who have given up. Believing that rest and peace can be found. And so they have adopted a, a nihilistic worldview. Everything is 
negative. And they have invited other people to join with them in their misery. You know people. You have friends. You have family who who devour these dystopian novels and they flock to these dystopian movies where everything is unpleasant and bad and totalitarian and degraded and scorched over. Google Home can't help them find that rest. If you ask Google, okay, Google, who is Jesus? Google Home or Alexa will tell you religions can be complicated and I'm still learning. That, of course, is their new answer after being criticized for identifying every major religious leader and Satan and Santa Claus, but never identifying Jesus. So can we take that off the plate? Google Home cannot help. Maybe we should say that together. Google Home cannot help, but you and I can help, right? Because we have that message. So first of all, you and I have to believe it for ourselves. True satisfaction found only in Christ, and then we need to share that message with others. So toward that end, if you have your Bibles with you, I ask you to turn to the Gospel of Matthew, the third chapter. And when you found your place in Matthew chapter 3, I'm going to ask you to stand, and we will hear read together the word of the living God. Matthew chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, this is the word of the Lord. In those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. Now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. But when he saw that many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming to his baptism, he said to them, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. I baptize you with water for repentance. But he who is coming after is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for inspiring Matthew to write this story as he writes it. Lord, we know that you have truth for us to learn from it this morning. So, We ask now, Spirit of God, that you would be the teacher here this morning, that you would reveal your truth, and that, Lord, having seen your truth, that we would order our lives according to it. That's our prayer, our plea as we come to you and your word together this morning. For it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thank you so much. You may be seated. 
This morning, I want us to consider four characteristics of the message that you and I need to be sharing with others. Four characteristics, and the first one is that our message is timely. It is for this time. Look again in verse 1. It begins with these words, in those days. Matthew doesn't get any more specific than that, though he could have. Matthew knew those specific days just like Luke did. Luke tells us what those days were. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod and his brother Philip were tetrarchs. It was during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas. At that time, the word of the Lord came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. Matthew could have been specific, but he's not. I think that Matthew here is seeking to evoke in us and all who read this gospel a feeling rather than fixating on a fact. A feeling not of a specific day, but of a time. Perhaps for us, it's thinking about World War II and those days. Thinking about the greatest generation. Thinking about the American spirit, what it was and what happened to it in those days. Well, Matthew tells us in those days what was happening. God was doing amazing work. In those days, the complete expression of the gospel was on the verge of being revealed. In those days, the promises of God were on the verge of being fulfilled in the person of Christ. In those days, God was relevant because He walked on the earth in human form. God knew all the trends. He was up on all the current philosophies, the favorite philosophies of the Greeks. He was up on all the the Roman gods and, and, and who they were and how they worshiped. God knew what was trendy, and God knew what was trending, among the young in those days. Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 reminds us, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. God is fully aware of time. He is the Lord over time. So those days were the right days for John and for Jesus to do ministry on earth. In God's view, there was not a better time. The world, in all its complexity and diversity and confusion, was never more ready for the preaching of John and Jesus than in those days. So I think that Matthew wants to evoke in us an excitement and awe about what God did in those days because in thinking about those days, we always draw a comparison to these days. We can't help it, right? We are competitive people. We're compelled to compare those days to these days. And maybe that's why Matthew leaves the time indistinct. So that we will make that comparison 
And so that you and I here in 2018 will ask the question, how do those days become these days for us? Can we be part of a great gospel movement, a great kingdom movement like the one we see here? If so, how? And that question should inspire our praying. We should be inspired to pray, Lord, may those days be these days. May we be part of some kind of gospel movement, though we may not yet know what that part is. Tim Keller writes about gospel movements. I love to say his name because then everybody's head looks up. (laughs) Tim Keller is about to speak through me. Here's what he writes. When a gospel city movement occurs, the whole body of Christ grows faster than the population so that the percentage of Christians in a city rises. Right? So the number of Christians is increasing greater than the population. We call this a movement because it consists of an energy that extends across multiple denominations and networks It does not reside in a single church or set of leaders or in any particular command center. And its forward motion does not depend on any one organization. It is organic and self-propagating, the result of a set of forces that interact, support, sustain, and stimulate one another. So, can we start gospel movements? Not really. They are too supernatural. But... We can build or steward a gospel movement. A good metaphor is Elijah's building of an altar in 1 Kings chapter 18. We can build the altar, but God has to send the fire. And when the fire comes, we can throw wood on it, but we still don't ignite it. Only God can ignite it. I know that God is over time. He's watching it. He's always engaged with it. He's making determinations about time. And when is the best time? And what should happen at certain times? And so I pray for us that this time, our time, these days, would be God's time for a gospel movement. Wouldn't you love to be part of a gospel movement? I want Redeemer to be part of of a gospel movement that, that reaches restless people and offers them hope in these days. What will that require? Some practical things for us. You and I can be intentional before the Lord about the use we make of these days that He's given to us. We can be intentional and we can be authentic when we meet together in our community groups, to eat together, to study God's Word together, to pray together, so that more and more we actually do become a family on mission together. You and I can connect intentionally and in an authentically interested way with our people of peace. Those people that God has placed in our lives who aren't believers, they know that we're believers, and they like us anyway. Please 
imagine. Perhaps God will bless those intentional, authentic efforts so that for us, these days might become those days. And a gospel movement might begin. And restless souls might find their rest in Jesus. So that's the first characteristic of this message. It is timely. It's for right now. It's for these days. Second characteristic is this, that the message addresses a great need. Our message addresses a great need. Look again in verse 1. We read there the place that John did his preaching. And Matthew tells us that it was in the wilderness of Judea. That was the place. Now listen, place is important to people. We began Redeemer Presbyterian Church in the Terrace Theater on James Island. And that was a place that a lot of people had to get over. Right? It wasn't a place that attracted people. And so people would come and they would visit and they'd say, well, I enjoyed the service, but it's weird coming to church in a theater. It's so dark in here. I watch movies here. I don't want to come to church here. And so they had plenty of other choices of much more beautiful and inspirational uh, worship places like this one. Right? Thank you, Lord, for, for this place. Or perhaps the place wasn't convenient. Oh, that place is too far of a drive. So think about the place where John was. <laughs> the desert, the wilderness. They've been described as badlands. So for those of you who like Western movies, you kind of get the picture. It's been described as a desolation, a vast expanse of barren, chalky soil covered with pebbles, broken stones, and rocks. Here and there, a bit of brushwood appears with snakes crawling underneath. So we need to get the picture of the place where John is preaching. It's, it's a wilderness. This is the place where God determined that John would do his preaching. How does this make any sense? I'm a member of the church planting committee for Low Country Presbytery. And right now we're in the process of doing demographic studies in the greater Charleston area, trying to figure out the best spots where we might plant a new church. And considering the population of Charleston area is going to be 1.25 million by the year 2025, right? Lots of opportunity. And so the end goal of our work is to produce a pamphlet to put in the hands of a, a prospective church planter. Here's Charleston. Here's the need. Then that church planter can put that pamphlet in the hands of his supporters. Hey, here's Charleston, and here's the need. Now imagine if a prospective church planter came to our committee and said, I have found the perfect place to start preaching and plant a new church. It's out in the desert where nobody lives and where nobody passes through. So what do we say? Uh, okay, let us know how that works for you. Who would choose a place to preach where nobody is? God did for John. Something else important to people is appearance. We care what we look like. We care about what other people look like. People's personal appearance often makes us either inclined or disinclined 
to listen to what they have to say based on what they look like. What did John look like? Look at verse 4. He wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and he ate food, uh, locusts, and wild honey. Now, it's true that his clothes were reminiscent of the prophet Elijah, if you were tuned into that. But much more, they were just the common dress of poor nomads. Poverty is what his clothes said. His food was the food of a poor nomad. But this place, the wilderness, and this person and his appearance were all part of the plan of God. Look in verse 2. God reminds us that, that, that God intended that a voice cry out in the wilderness where there was no one living to hear it. God intended that John be poor in appearance. The same way that Jesus was from a holler. You know I'm going to ride that one for a long time. All of this is counterintuitive to our nature as human beings to whom place is important and appearance is important. And when you consider these two in relation to John, no one should have known or cared that he existed. A wild man out in the desert. And yet the reality is that people flocked to this place and to this person who looked like that. Look in verse 5. Then Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him. The place didn't matter. The person didn't matter. His appearance didn't matter because the need was so very great. So restless were the souls of these people that they didn't care where they had to go, what it looked like, if it was convenient or not. They didn't care what the person speaking to them looked like, even if he looked like a bum off of the street. They went and they listened to John because their souls were restless. And what they discovered in that place from that person brought rest to their souls. So why did God choose this place and this person and this appearance? Maybe it was to set us free. You know, we have a, an out-of-order list of must-haves for what we think other people need. We have an out-of-order list of, of things that we think we need. And God works around and above what we think is important and what we think people need in order to hear our message. And that means it becomes easy for us, for you and to me, to, to spend time and energy on things that really are not that important. And in this passage, all of those things are stripped away. We are literally left with just a man and his message. That's it. The man and his message. I'm not saying place is not important. It can be. It's important to be hospitable and welcoming to people. I'm not saying appearance is not important. It can be. We don't need to put up unnecessary barriers for people to hear us, what we have to say. What I am saying is that the need people have is beyond those things. I'm saying that people are more than these things. They're not truly that shallow. 
God can use, but does not need to use these things to bring peace through us to restless souls. So here's the thing. Let's not forever put off addressing the greater need that people have while we're busy getting everything ready that probably doesn't really matter. God can use you and your gospel message and nothing else. God can use you and your gospel message and nothing else. God made it just that simple because the need is just that great. So the message is timely. It's for these days. The message addresses a great need. Now, before we look at the third and fourth characteristic, let's just take a minute to define what our message is. Look in verse 2. John says there, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so here's the message. It's a message of repentance. And we've defined repentance so often. But I don't think we can define it too often. You know what it is. Repentance carries the idea of turning. Of turning from one thing and turning towards something else. And so for the people who were flocking out to hear John in the desert, the idea is turn from the life you're living. Turn from the way you're thinking and turn to God. But more than that, live for God. A full understanding of repentance involves the emotions, what we feel, and the mind and our will. See, our emotions are involved because repentance produces uh, hatred, right? A hatred of sin. We see sin for what it is, and we hate it, and we turn from it. It produces the, the emotion of fear. You know, we fear the end result of not turning away from our sin. But repentance in addition to feelings, also includes the mind and the will, the determination to keep choosing to turn from sin and producing fruit of a life lived for God. Look in verse 8. That's part of John's message. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And so in this full kind of repentance, people will find rest for their souls. And so our message has to be a full message of repentance as well. People are, are on a road that leads to death, and they got to turn around. And they have to turn away from death, and they have to turn toward Christ by faith. And that turning is a continual choice. We are not inert people. We are being constantly moved through this world by time. Time is just happening to us, and, and it keeps us moving, pulling us forward. And the world through which we pass is not a silent world. Many voices call to us. They call to you. They call to me. And these voices say, come down my path. Just like the mythic sirens with their alluring voices. They sang. They played their beautiful music. And they lured sailors to their island. And the sailors become shipwrecked. On its shores. Odysseus, the hero of Homer's Odyssey, he was curious. What song would the siren sing? And so he had all of his soldiers plug their ears with beeswax so they could not hear the sirens singing. And he ordered his men to tie him to the mast. 
And he said, no matter how much I beg, do not release me when I hear the voice of the sirens. Well, uh, Odysseus hears the voice of the sirens. And he begs the soldiers, I mean the, the, the sailors, to, to, to untie him and to set him free. But they only tied him tighter. So like the sirens for Odysseus and their beautiful voices. There are voices calling you and people you know, enticing you, come this way. And I don't need to delineate what those voices are because you, you know those voices. You, you hear them all the time. The voice of that person, the voice of that activity, the voice of that thing that's always calling you and trying to allure you away from Christ. Repentance is choosing to stay tied to the mast while the ship keeps sailing past. Repentance is turning away from the voice or the path that lures you away from Jesus. And so we have to choose to turn daily, repent daily, and turn to Christ. Listen to His voice. Follow His commands. The passage demonstrates that this message was not considered negative to these restless people. They were ready for the message of repentance. They had followed the voice of the sirens long enough. And they had found no satisfaction. And so they were tired. They were ready to hear about repentance. And the message resonated with them. Look in verse 6. They were baptized by John in the river Jordan. Confessing their sins. This was a welcome message. It wasn't a negative message. It's a welcome message to those who are restless. It's a message of grace and mercy to weary travelers who have not and cannot find rest, who are on the road to their own destruction. Do not be afraid of calling people to repent and believe the gospel. That's good news. Stand with the Apostle Paul and saying, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's the message. Now let's get to the third characteristic. Y'all tired? Come on, wake up. Not too much longer. The third characteristic of our message that is for this time, our message that addresses a great need, is that our message must be direct. Our message must be direct. Look, when John calls people to repent, he's not making a suggestion. He's commanding them, repent. Look at the end of verse 7. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. I would call that pretty direct as well, wouldn't you? It's difficult for us because we live in a culture that is not very direct. Here's what you and I have to do. We have to catch every word before it comes out of our mouth. And we have to take it and turn it over and look at all of those words and think of every possible contingency of, of how that word might be interpreted before we let it out of our mouth. Otherwise, we might offend somebody. Well, sometimes words slip out. We, we didn't see that coming. And people respond, well, well that offends me. Well... If that offends you, what do we do in our culture? All conversation shuts down, right? If somebody's offended, that's the cardinal sin, so we cannot keep talking, and so conversation ceases to be. At least one reason 
certainly not the only reason that people have difficulty with President Trump is that they find him to be too direct in a culture that has passed judgment on directness, and we have said that it is inappropriate. It's been so long since someone has spoken so directly that we don't know what to do with it. Now, I am certainly not endorsing the president's infamous tweets. I am not. Look, some are already offended. Some of you hate Trump and you're ready to walk out because you mentioned Donald Trump from the pulpit. And others of you just love him. Look, all I'm doing is this. I am making an observation about what I see about how our culture communicates. And it's not with directness. And I'm just saying in the light of John the Baptist in the desert, who are we to dismiss directness as a way of communicating with people? Now, directness does not mean that you get to say anything you want. That's not what directness is. Directness is simply directly addressing the need that someone has with the truth of the gospel. Colossians 4, 5 tells us, walk in wisdom toward outsiders, those who don't know the Lord. Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt. Salt. Don't be afraid to be direct in saying, this is the way. You must walk in it. Think of Isaiah 30. Can you turn to Isaiah 30? If you have your Bible, in the Pew Bible, it's page 591. Isaiah 30. Isaiah 30, beginning in verse 8. The Lord says this, And now, go, write it before them on a tablet, and inscribe it in a book, that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. For they are a rebellious people, lying children, children unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord, who say to the seers, Do not see. And to the prophets, do not prophesy to us what is right. Speak to us smooth things. Prophesy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Now that's what the human heart wants, isn't it? Don't be direct. Be a smooth talker. Tell people what they want to hear so that they can do what they want to do. But God is gracious. Look at verse 18 of Isaiah 30. Therefore the Lord waits to be gracious to you, and therefore He exalts Himself to show mercy to you. For the Lord is a God of justice. Blessed are all those who wait for Him. For a people shall dwell in Zion, in Jerusalem. You shall weep no more. He will surely be gracious to you at the sound of your cry. As soon as he hears it, he answers you. And though the Lord give you the bread of adversity and the water of affliction, yet your teacher, capital T, will not hide himself anymore. But your eyes shall see your teacher, capital T, and your ears shall hear a word behind you saying, This is the way. Walk in it. When you turn to the right or to the left and... 
when you turn to the right or when you turn to the left. Now, did you hear that? This is the way. Walk in it. Not a way, but the way. And so Isaiah is looking forward to the time of the Holy Spirit, the teacher, capital T, who will lead us into truth, God's truth, the truth. He will lead us to the way. Jesus is the way, right? The way and the truth. John was not afraid to be direct with truth, and neither should we be. I'm just saying we don't do anyone any favors. We don't help our restless friends our restless family members, our longtime neighbors, our classmates, by not speaking the truth to them in grace and love. Now, let's move finally. And this one is so short, you're not even going to believe it. It's going to be over before you can imagine it. But our message, it's, it's timely, it's for now, right? And, and, and that message, it has to be direct. And finally, it has to be Christ-centered. So if you Forget everything else I said this morning. Don't forget this. Our message must always be Christ-centered. For all I've said about John this morning and what he looked like and what he ate and where he preached and all this, for all I said about John, John knows that the deepest need of the soul is is with Jesus. Look in verse 11. John says this, I baptize you with water for repentance, But he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. See, John takes him straight to Jesus. Jesus is mightier than I. Jesus is mightier than I am. Jesus must always be first. Jesus must always be the focus. I want to say that again. Jesus must always be first. And Jesus must always be the focus. So with our words that we speak and with the lives that we live, as we meet with restless people, as we pray for them to find rest, we must always point them to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He must be the center. He is the answer for those who don't know Him and for those of us who do. And so when we are finished with our timely message, when we're finished with our message that addresses a great need, when we've spoken it directly, each person, when we are finished, should be looking at the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. After our message, if we have been effective and the Lord has blessed us, people should be pleading, give me Jesus. You can have everything else. It's not important. Just give me Jesus. Because they have come to understand through our message that their hearts will be restless until they find their rest in Jesus. Let's pray. Father, help us believe the truth of these words. But beyond believing them, Lord, help us experience them. Grace us, Spirit of God with the feeling that this is true. With the feeling that our hearts are satisfied. They're at rest. They're at peace. Because we know you, Lord Jesus. And so all the striving in our lives has ceased. 
all the striving for significance and importance and meaning. We found that in you. Lord Jesus, you offer yourself to us as a free gift of God's grace. It's just our part to believe by faith and to receive. Lord, then we'll be at peace with you as we walk through this world, preparing to enter the next. Lord, convict us this morning if we have been too self-centered and too worried about our own satisfaction and our own peace and haven't looked around at all the other people in our lives who need it, friends and family and classmates and coworkers and neighbors. Father, help us to see them as you see them, as restless people who need to find rest in you. Lord, convict us that our message is for now, that our message is so vitally important so that we are willing to speak it boldly and directly as we point people to you. Lord, may their cry and the cry of our hearts always be, give me Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen.